You're listening to the voice of Howard Stern. Hello, you rotten little mudsucker. This is Alice Cooper. Hey, this is Justin from NSYNC. This is Rodney Dangerfield. Uh, hey, baby. Hellers the king. Oh. Hi, this is Jack. Just back up from the border for a short visit. You know what I'm talking about, pal? Hi there and welcome to another edition of The Horse's Mouth. You're in The Horse's Mouth and my name is John Teague. Um, Yesterday I had the good fortune of speaking with none other than Jim Allen. Now, Jim Allen had um, been recommended to me by like, you know, lots of people, not lots, but three people had said to me from different spheres, hey, you need to talk to Jim Allen. And I was like, okay, obviously I need to speak to Jim Allen. So I reached out to Jim um, and we had a coffee and we, and I explained to him what, what I was up to. And, um, and, and he was so gracious in inviting me uh, to his house yesterday to have a chat. Um, now, Jim Allen has, is living an an amazing life, really a life of, you know, um, he grew up in an Australia when Australia was a different place and he's, you know, just followed his passion from the get-go um, and, and really carved out what I perceive as an amazing life. Like, you know, if you love something and you get to live that life and it affords you, um, you know, to, to be able to sustain what you love to do. It, it's just, I think that there's nothing better. And, and you can see in, and there's a glint in Jim's eye that you just, you, you know that he's lived a fulfilled life and he's appreciative of that and, and happy to pass on knowledge. Um, you know, he's, he's got an, an, he's, he's very humble. He's got an OAM. He's got an order of Australia medal for, um, for his contributions in protecting fisheries and fish and making sure that fish um, are going to be there for for you and for your kids and your grandkids. And because um, in Jim's lifetime, he's seen such vast change in the world um, and, and could see where 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 we're going and if we don't protect certain things they'll be just gone it'll be gone forever so jim has dedicated much of his life to protecting fish and and um and the fisheries and habitats natural habitats uh of australia and the world um you know and he's and it's been vast he's done doc he's done tv series with greg norman the shark the great white shark there's a pun in that um so yeah anyway i hope you enjoy my chat with jim um i really really enjoyed going over meeting jim having coffee jim if you if you're listening thank you so much um i, I really appreciate your time and um and yeah so i'll just throw you into the chat and i won't waffle on too much more um now just while i just had this thought the other day and last night actually because when look i took some clothes to the laundromat because i had washed them and i put my dryer in the house because i'm like i don't want to use my dryer it's just an energy suck and um but then i had some t-shirts that i wanted to shrink because they're a little bit big right you know when you get the size it's your size but it's a little big so i took them to the dryer and I, i shrunk them purposefully and high heat and um when i came back half an hour later someone had nabbed my laundry basket (laughs) and some reason this irked me it irked me a bit and i was just like you know did people just not give a shit anymore was it just like an honest mistake oh they'll just take this one i don't don't know but like you know and then I, i got 
I came home and uh, the shirts were shrunk. That that worked. And um, and anyway, it started me thinking. And then I was thinking about this thing. Well, I did this course ages ago, and in the course there was this presentation and whoever was taking the course, I can't remember who it was, it was said, okay, now I want you to put your attention onto the screen. And on the screen, there was two basketball teams standing around and one of the teams had a ball and they had to pass it between each other as many times as they could and the other team was trying to block them. And so they were passing this ball around. And so the job was as the... Um, student watching this was to count how many times the ball was passed and i was like yeah yeah i'm, I'm a laser on this one i'm, I'm in I'll, I'll do this and so we, we i watched it and i counted and then we get to the end and the teacher's going around the room and he's asking like how many times was it passed and you know i was really eager to give my yeah you know like 27 20 it was for sure you know i would have put money on it and um everyone had their different varying answers and then he goes all right did anyone see the gorilla walk through the middle and it was like what and he replayed it and there was a guy in a gorilla suit walked through the middle of this fucking mayhem of them passing the ball and blocking it and no one in the room saw it because everyone was so zeroed in on watching him and their attention was just count 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 right and and we didn't see it. I didn't see it. No one saw it. And it blew my brain. Just like if you're so zeroed in on something, hey, you cannot see something. And um, I, I just, like, I, I don't know why the bloody washing basket made me start thinking about the attention and where's people's attention, um, you know, and where's my own attention? Am I so, like, if do we get so zeroed in on 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 getting things done that we perceive to be right that we're missing other things um and, and you can put that into your life however you want but it made me think about like you know am i am i grabbing onto certain things and and and, and focused on them too much you know and what am i missing what, what are the gorillas in my life that i'm missing you know like it was a, it was a really good uh yeah, test. I, I don't know, you know, like, do we focus too much on, on chasing money and that's the most important or is it like, um, you know, like you could, you could put it into a million things. Um, attention's a powerful thing or it's, 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 it could be an Achilles heel. I don't know, really know where I'm going with that. I'm going to stop talking because I'm digging myself into a corner of, of, of philosophy that I don't really know where it's going. But I hope... Um, it, it, it sparks some sort of thought for you, you know, because yeah, blah, blah, blah. I hope you enjoy my chat with Jim Allen and I'll see you on the other side. All right. A complete and total barfarama. Yeah, I, my first fishing life started off at the Sorrento Pier. Um, yeah, mother was uh, divorced and had a of a male friend uh, who uh, lived on the S-Bend between Sorrento and Portsea. And, of course, it was a sort of 20-minute walk to the Sorrento Pier. And, of course, I started my life out fishing but with hand lines for leather jackets on the Sorrento Pier. And then that expanded to all those private jetties between Sorrento and Portsea and eventually hitchhiking to Portsea Pier, which was a better pier for leather jackets. And that's where life started in fishing for me. Um, and so and we so used to 
say all the school holidays we used to stay at the Barrett's house at Sorrento and uh, and of course my only interest and it started off just mother had a a, a a girl of my age staying as a family friend and she was interested in fishing and that's how it started. She was interested yeah, in she fishing. she was interested in fishing and um, so we went down to the pier and of course that started it all off and of course it never went back for me. I fished all my life. Yeah. Did she, did, that's fascinating because you think of fishing as a male dominance uh, recreation. Yeah, yeah well it's, of course it, it isn't today but, but in actual fact in my early fly fishing life, it was very male dominated. There were very few women fly fishers, but there is today plenty of them. You know, they're everywhere. But uh, uh, yes, it was a, a girl that started me fishing, which is amazing when you look back, because even in those days, the peers were mainly blokes, and and peers had their sort of um, own sort of. Uh, Family usually uh, w what we now affectionately call wogs, but they were guys that had come out as migrants to Australia and were mad keen fishermen, and and the peers had a lot of wogs, as I put it, uh, on the pier, and and of course they were a sort of, they were very affectionate to young boys. You know, they helped us with bait and hooks and sinkers because it was pretty rudimentary in those days fishing off those piers. And looking back now, I think the leather jackets, of course, are so visual. They used to creep out from underneath the piles of the pier and we could see them eat our little bait, which was mussels mainly. And, uh, and you know, I used to go home with leather jackets that had a good sunbake on the pier. I, they were miraculously converted into Mr. Somebody's fish fingers, I suspect, um, and put in the rubbish bin. But of course, when you're when you're eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, you, you don't think of those sort of things. Today, my life's totally different. I think if you're going to kill something, you've got to treasure it. And over my life, I've been a, 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 a I've shot thousands of quail and thousands of ducks, and I've killed thousands of fish. But in later life. Um, I came quite quickly to conclusion if you're going to kill something you've got to treasure it and learn how to and to look after it which today still irks me that so many people don't look after their fish but that's another story yeah no it's funny how that comes of age a bit because when I was young I was pretty gung-ho as well and never thought much of the kill it was the thrill. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And, and as yeah. you get older you start to realize oh my god you know yeah. I'm taking something life and and then it all everything starts to comp compound more you think about war you think about all sorts of things and then lately i've been fascinated with looking at indigenous culture and how when they killed something nothing got left everything yeah, that's, was yeah that's right and of course i remember in our, my early fly fishing days and i was a 19 year old uh, we used to go up to Kyandra in the Snowy Mountains and uh, there was a chap there called Harvey Palfrey that ran the Kyandra Chalet or the, the local pub and uh, I remember one of my mates doing one of those posters of a wanted, uh, you know, those convict posters and, and, it, and it, he had written wanted for piscatorial mayhem BG, the bloody butcher of Kyandra. And there was a photo of a mate of mine called Brian Gordon, nicknamed BG. And uh, he'd tomahawked 
the heads off trout and pack them into eskies to take them back to Melbourne. And of course, in those days, there were bag limits of 10 or 12 fish and we didn't think much about it. We killed everything we took and then took them back to Melbourne and gave them away. Looking back now, you don't kill fish that way and you certainly don't pack them that way. And and, uh, that poster sat in the uh, pub of Kyandra and I think all of us had the first inkling of an impact of are we taking too many trout? Should we be killing fish or should we be putting them back? And all those questions began to be asked. And we were only in our um, early 20s at most, uh, probably 1920. And there for the first time, we thought conservatively about what we were doing with our fishing. And um, and I, I was as guilty as anyone, you know, like we used to go down to Eucumbine and fish up till midnight and catch 10 trout, which was the New South Wales bag limit at the time. Then we'd fish after midnight and get another 10, and then we'd pack them all up and... Would people be checking? Uh, Yeah, occasionally. I'll tell you a story about being checked. Um, But we then packed them up and took them into the Anambinibi Ice House and, and, in fact, being checked... We used to fish the day on the Eucumbine River, and I remember one particular day we were down there and there was a bloke watching us and he was hiding behind trees and eventually I was fishing with my old partner Bob Rolls who started out in the fishing tackle trade with me and I yelled up to this bloke I said I don't know what you're doing mate but come down and you know what's your problem and he introduced himself as Jack Rhodes and he was a local fisheries inspector and so he said now look I've noticed you blokes putting fish back and yet I know you kill fish. I said, oh, yeah. I said, we got our bag limit last night down on the lake at Eucumbine. We put them back up here. And he said, hmm, well, I've been chasing you blokes all over the mountains because I've been told that you've been taking too many fish. I said, no, no, no. I said, this is my mate Bob Rolls. We've both been in the fi- we're both in the fishing tackle industry and uh, we couldn't afford to get caught anyway, but we don't break the rules, but we do use the rules, you know, and, uh, but we've got enough fish to go back to Melbourne and and anyway, we, we exchanged pleasantries. He laughed it off and off he went in his own way. Later on in life, I met his brother, Phil, who was also a fisheries inspector for the Victorian Department and uh, he was based out of Wangaratta and uh, always turned up at the Wangaratta Fly Fishers dinner as he, as I did in those days and um, and uh, we laughed about Jack and then Jack later on wrote a book about his experience as a wildlife officer and it's a great read you know and he tells lots of stories he doesn't tell our story but he tells lots of stories he he was based in Gippsland all over and he, and he, he was not only a fisheries inspector. He was a wildlife officer as well. Anyway, and he was a character. And so was Jack Rhodes, a character. But I got to know Phil better than Jack. Yeah, anyway, they, they were the early days. And uh, and thinking about conservation of fishing, of course, later in life, I got involved in a lot of organisations and belonged to a ministerial advisory body on recreational fishing in Victoria. And... Uh, so does that does that like um, work out like you know like um, marine sanctuaries and like areas that are no, not- I, look I, I I think most of my interest in fisheries management was more freshwater than salt, more worried about um, the genetic dilution of hatcheries in the broodfish program at Snobs Creek where they 
grew fish to 12 pound, then mated them. I was fighting more for harvesting wild trout out of the Goulburn River, taking those eggs back and raising them and then re-releasing them. And there was a divergence of, of issues on trout management vis-a-vis sort of wild trout versus domestic trout. You know, like if you grow um, cattle in paddocks, uh, they, they're not wild, they're domesticated. And we were fighting against the domestication of trout and... And, you know, fisheries managers are more interested in a 99% um, harvest of fish eggs uh, for success rather than considering the wild genes. And so there was an organisation in the United States of America called Trout Unlimited, and I was a, a fan of Trout Unlimited, in fact, got involved in opening a chapter here in Australia, which didn't last, mind you, but... Out of that came the Australian Trout Foundation and, and, and they still today still fight for wild trout propagation rather than uh, a, a sort of domesticated trout management program. Is this, and that, that was the difference yeah. between the Ballarat Fish Acclimatisation Society that started operations something 140 or 50 years ago um, and the bureaucrats at Snobs Creek were more interested in their success rate rather than considering the genes of wild fish. And uh, anyway, that's a whole issue that I could go on for an hour and a half about. But but <laughs> but the bottom line to me, it's significantly important to this day. Yeah. yeah. So and and of course, the world's changing. You know, once upon a time, the wild trout fisheries in around the world were not fished in because the popularity of fishing in Alaska or Tasmania or the more remote parts of the world, southern Argentina, um, but that exploded in the 1960s and 70s and 80s into a tourist economy for all those countries, and Alaska's famous for its salmon and trout fishing, just as southern Argentina is and Tasmania is today. And, and of course, those fisheries have had to change dramatically with the huge population increase in recreational trout fishing. Yeah, so, uh, and I've been involved in all of that, both as a fishing tackle retailer and uh, and and. and a passionate interest in the management of wild fish. And, uh, you know, I read today of uh, Richard Flanagan's book, Toxic, and the management of the salmon farms in Tasmania, where there's a whole heap of issues on, on uh, you know, chemicals and, and seals. And there's... Now Richard Flanagan's written an eye-opening book that which if you read it, you probably wouldn't eat salmon again or, or ocean trout. And yet... Like, actually, from the ocean, though? Yeah, yeah. Well, because well, they, of what's happening in the oceans? Well, yeah, but they, they're breeding them in the ocean in great big pens. And, of oh, course, the there's all sorts of pollution going in underneath the pens, and uh, there's uh, there's a hundred different issues that are really mind-boggling. And, and so, consequently, you know, we live in this... I suppose you could even say that human beings have become a plague on the planet and uh, and our food supply is increasingly uh, domestically raised or intensively farmed or whichever way you put it. And with that comes all the issues of uh, antibiotics in food and chemi- chemical um, 
chemical compounds in food that are to stop um, viruses and all that sort of thing. And so consequently, I still say a wild fish or a wild bird shot and killed is much better for you than some of the intensively farmed chooks and prawns and fish that are, are done today. And if you read Richard Flanagan's book, it is a real eye-opener. What's that yeah. book called? It's called Toxic. Toxic. Yeah, just called Toxic. And it's uh, it's it's a good read for those who are interested in what we eat and, 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 and what happens to what we eat. Do you yeah. think it's the same with vegetables? I don't know enough about vegetables, but I suspect so. You know, I hear, I hear quite often sort of... Um, people that have their own veggie plots saying it's so much better to buy a veggie that I grow than, than what it is to buy one that's purchased. So I think, I think the issue of chemis, chemicals in, in vegetables is probably very much worse than what we know because it's not given the publicity. But, um, you know, I think the guy who, who has his own veggie garden grows a better vegetable than what you'd buy, mm-hmm. uh, again, because of the intensity intensive farming of, of things today. Um, I don't think it's as bad with things like sheep and cattle because they actually do roam in paddocks. But I think when it comes to chooks, where they sort of, you know, a chook grows for 12 weeks with growth hormones and, and is under a shed under lights in certain temperature control, antibiotics, oh, you know. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah battery hand or whatever they say. Yeah, I think if you, if you kill a duck... You shoot a duck and kill a duck. Whilst there's a cruelty element to that, I think you're eating much better food than what you are eating a chook. But from, uh, unless from you're Mr. Kentucky Fried Chook, unless you're company. a vegan, you have got no grounds to stand on because every bit of meat that you eat is murdered, whether it's shot out of the sky or in a. Well, let me tell you a funny story on that very subject. I, I came back from a duck shoot and I was about a 22-year-old and walked into my mother's bridge game and uh, she had four old. Biddy's there, buddy, playing cards. And, and how'd you go, darling, says Mum. And, oh, yeah, we do. We got 42 ducks. And one of, the, one of the girls playing said, how dare you be so cruel to those poor, harmless, defenceless ducks? And uh, I said, well, you must be vegetarian. She said, I most certainly am. And I said, so you're very happy with thousands of acres of natural habitat for wild animals to be destroyed so you can grow your wheat and barley and sit on and pontificate how special you are when you've just killed the wildlife of Australia a different way by ploughing up paddocks and and, uh, growing your barley and wheat that you call yourself a vegetarian with. You're just as criminal as I am. And my mother said, would you remove yourself out of this room immediately, James? And uh, I said, yes, Mum, and did. Anyway, later on that night, my, my mother... Look, it's unkind to say, but she drank too much. And she she drank certainly pretty heavily with those girls playing cards. And she said to me, you know... I was proud of you because you were so right and uh, you did shut her up, but I couldn't let you go on with it. Yeah, I had to remove yeah, yeah. you out of the room. And yeah, yeah. Anyway, she laughed and I laughed and that was it. But, uh, but, but really and truly, even the vegetarians of the world, um, they like to claim that they're on a higher pedestal, but they're not because wildlife habitat is important and, 
you know, when it comes to, say, duck shooting, the wetlands that was set aside in the 1900s as state game reserves protected all the other waterfowl that we don't shoot, like spoonbills, ibis and, you know, shags and, and every other waterfowl. Um, and then for six weeks or eight weeks or ten weeks, whatever the season is, we shoot ducks on those uh, state game reserves. But had we not had the foresight to fight for those wetlands to be preserved, they would have been drained and used as farm land because that's they're more valuable as farmland. But thank goodness the earlier generation of shooters uh, managed to preserve those state game reserves, game reserves. So there's thousands of acres of wetlands preserved for all time. And now we've got a government that's so anti-cruelty and, you know, we're allowed to shoot one of this or two of that. And I think this year we're only allowed to shoot two or three ducks, where in my early days we were allowed to shoot 20, you know, so times have changed and probably for the right reasons. Yeah, so. Well, it's a numbers game, really. Like, you know, like compared to, what, 30, 40, 50 years ago, the sheer numbers on people on Earth... Now, unfortunately, we just consume and are stuck in this creature comfort land. And with the exponential growth rate of humanity, we just can't keep... If everyone was to go out and get their bag, there'd be nothing oh, left. Oh, of course. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there's no doubt, as I said earlier, we've become a plague on this planet. And this COVID might be nature's way of getting back at us a bit too, because I notice it's been killing uh, the 75 and 85-year-olds much quicker than it kills somebody, a young bloke like you. But, but the bottom line of it is... Um, I think a virus will get us in the end. And, well, and this particular virus is being pretty harmless because it's only killing the 80-year-olds. Now, I'm in my late 70s and I've had my COVID shot and I'm looking after myself. But when I see what our governments are doing uh, around the world to protect um, mankind, I think we're on the wrong tram. We should probably, those that would die of influenza or pneumonia are now dying of COVID instead. But at the end of the day, it's not, you know, the school kids aren't being affected. The, your age, age 35, 45, whatever you are, um, you're not being affected to any great degree. Now, it, it, sure enough, it might knock one or two of you off, but it, it certainly knocks a lot more off who are in their 80s. But we're in the last quarter or time on or whichever way you want to say, you know, we are the useless members of the community because we're all retired and, and uh, we're not contributing. Uh, however, um, I think this virus, is, you know, I think as a nation, we've, well, it is in this world, we've become neurotic about it and, um, and there's way too many of us on the planet anyway. It wouldn't do any harm for one of these viruses to knock 35 40% of us off. Um, I think we're actually at some stage going to have to learn, learn to live sustainably. Now, I'm putting my green hat on, I suppose, but, which I don't have, um, <laughs> but when I look at the, the, you know, the grasslands of Melton and Backers Marsh where I used to have a box of ferrets and shot a few rabbits as a teenager, um, they're no longer, they're now suburbs. You know, Backers Marsh is really a suburb of Melbourne. Melton is certainly a suburb of Melbourne. Well, I remember as a young bloke taking a train out there and, and um, wandering all over there, rabbiting and mucking around as kids, and that's all gone. But then again... 
We were wrong, you know. When I was a boy, we birds nested all along the Yarra River in the botanical gardens where we shouldn't have. Um, well, what's bird, birds nested? Birds nesting. You used to collect the eggs. Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay, you used yeah. to get the eggs out of the nest and then you blow them. You, you put a little hole one end and a big hole the other end. You blow all the, the gump out of the egg and then you used to... We used to keep the eggs in shoeboxes, you know. Yeah. And some of us even made wooden wooden boxes for our egg collections and... You know, there wasn't a kid alive in my generation as a teenager who didn't have a Joseph Rogers knife in his pocket and didn't have a Shanghai or, you know, yeah. like, and, you know, okay, a couple of us bloody, you know, broke arms and had a fight or something. But, you know, we used to roam the Yarra River um, as kids and I look back... Uh, the kids get their rocks off in the front of a screen today, but we, you know, we had Shanghais and we shot birds and we shot each other at times. We used to have a <laughs> war with the boys from Burnley on the other side of the Yarra, um, but nobody really got hurt occasionally. And I got, it didn't get knocked out, but, you know, you get hit in the eye. But, you know, I look, I look at our life as kids in Melbourne and we had a freedom that's just totally unknown today. You know, we left home at 6 o'clock in the morning. The only rule was... The light, you had to be home by the time the lights came on and um, there was no mobile phone, no parents to keep an eye on us. Occasionally you got into trouble with the police. I remember being taken home one time. Um, harmlessly, though, you know, we were just mucking around, uh, causing grief to drivers on the Yarra running across the roads and things. But, but you know, we had a freedom that is unknown today, you know, like... When I was 14, I had a 22 rifle, used to go to Packers Marsh and go rabbiting with a box of ferrets. Can you imagine today a teenage boy on a train <laughs> or a tram coming home with a box of ferrets, 10 dead rabbits hanging around his neck? And uh, But that was a life we lived. And, yeah, that sounds as if I do it every weekend, or we did it every weekend, but that's not true. But we did do it. Yeah. And they were adventurous times for us. And I remember selling those rabbits on the tram to football crowds on a Saturday night, and they were the days before mexamatosis came to the rabbit population to A, wipe it out, and B. You know, rabbits were pretty prolific back in the 1950s, and uh, and, I, and as a 14, 13... Well, I think I probably didn't have a 22 until I was 14, but the bigger boys, you know, from Scotch College and, and Melbourne Grammar, they had 303 rifles, wartime rifles... Um, and they were on the trams with them in their cadet school uniforms where we were just little urchins with dead rabbits and blood <laughs> hanging around our shirts. But, you know, like, but I look back, you know, that's a Melbourne that just doesn't exist today, you know. And the kids get their rocks off with violent screenplay, um, killing each other on screens, where we, we weren't killing each other, but we were certainly killing turtle doves and, and um, you know, birds nesting. And we, were, we had an adventurous life that was probably nearly as violent as the kids have on their screens today. But when I look back, but can, I think, you, can you imagine a police car turning up at a tram today with a, yeah. a teenage boy with a rifle? Yeah, well, you'd have a terrorist squad there. Well, it's unthinkable. Yeah. You know, it's just you know. And I look back; it was part of our life. But we came from a, you know, a generation that had seen two world wars, and a generation that was used to firearms, 
and didn't care, or well, probably that's not the right word, but didn't have the same thoughts about what firearms can do today. And when you read of the, the mass murders in America, there's probably real reasons to have firearms legislation. You know, I think, I think we got a shock when that Martin Bryant shot all those people down in Tasmania at Port Arthur. And, um, and, I, and, and I think back, you know, we've got the right rules for the right reasons today, but we lived in different times and we were very fortunate to do so. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Anyway, it was my early life, and you know, then I grew up. And so, so when you left school, what did you have an idea of? You've had, you know, you no idea, no idea, okay. no idea at all. Good. I left school. <laughs> I think one of my school reports had if James had paid much attention to his scholastic endeavours as he has to his fishing, he might have made a better student. Uh, and yet, later on, of course that interest in fishing ended up being my life commercially. But I was 24 years of age uh, before I even thought that I'd be in a fishing tackle uh, shop or retailing or wholesaling or all the things that I did later. But I picked up a fellow called Bob Rolls. Uh, we were 19. I had an FJ Holden, which I'd, I was buying off my mother at a pound a week. And I was only earning 11 pounds a week in those days. And I worked for a carpet company called Floor Coverings Proprietary Limited, run by a fellow called D.G. Smith. And he was a great mentor to me looking back, although at the time I didn't think he was. Um, but looking back, he was. And uh, and I had a, a very good early commercial grounding. Then I went on to work for Bull and Welsh, and Bull and Welsh was one of those old department stores in Melbourne that no longer exists. There, in those days, there was Bull and Welsh, the Mutual Store, George's, um, oh, there were Foy and Gibson. There were a lot of department stores. Like a David Jones, like a Myers? Yeah, like, yeah. like a Myers. Yeah. Myers the remnant and David Jones are the remnant. But Melbourne was full of these department stores. Uh, and... Um, if you've ever seen the television show, Are You Being Served? Uh, there's a Mrs. Slocum in Ball and Welsh. Uh, there was a Mr. Grace. There was all the characters depicted in that, that English department store were in Ball and Welsh. And I mean it in absolutely technicolour. Could you and see your own character in there? No. <laughs> <laughs> but I, let me tell you a funny anecdote. I, I, I've been a golfer. Uh, in my early life, and I'm not a golfer now. And uh, and uh, I was playing uh, at one of Melbourne's better-known courses, and we had a four in front of us, uh, and they lost their ball, and we went through and happened to be the managing director of Ball and Welsh, and he said, what are you doing here? I said, playing golf like you, sir. He said, I'll see you in my office tomorrow morning. Uh, I thought, oh, here we go. It's going to hit the fan big time. Anyway, <laughs> next morning I go in and the manager of the carpet department, which is where I was working at the time, said, well, we've had the MD up here. He said, you're not in any trouble, but he needs to see you. So I go down there and, of course, I was nervous as all get out because I was 22 or something at the time. Anyway, uh Ball and Welsh wouldn't pay overtime, and they also paid four cents in ten dollars commission. Uh, and um, 
Four cents in ten dollars. Yeah, and we just changed to decimal currency. I was twenty two. Was born in forty. Yeah, it was sixty six. It was the same year, probably. Anyway, uh, Ball and Welsh were importing a carpet out of Ireland called Tintorn, and uh, and of course there were uh, at the time all those. Uh, Jewish families were building flats in Elstonwick and around the back of St Kilda there. And, and of course, it was a cheap, hard-wearing, good-quality carpet and unbelievably low-priced by comparison to the English Wiltons and Axminsters and things. Anyway, uh, we were... Because Ball and Welsh wouldn't pay any overtime... We had to measure carpets out in the house after work, and we'd be out there at 7.30, 8.30 at night through the week showing the various colours of carpets to mums and dads and then measuring up and quoting, and, and our department's figures were up 60% for the year. Well, fortunately, the MD had a quick look. Anyway, I remember the manager of the department was a fellow called Mr Murray, can't remember what his Christian name. In those days, everybody was Mister. And uh, anyway, he, he, he said to the MD, he said, "These two young blokes that are working are earning more money than I am as the manager of the department." Hmm. We'll have to fix that up," says the MD. So I go down to meet him, and he goes, um, "I've." been fully informed by the general manager of the carpet department what you're up to and I've you know I understand exactly what's happened he said how often do you play at Royal Melbourne and I said well all the time with my mates he said are you a member I said no I'm a member of Metropolitan he said do you think you could play with your friends at Metropolitan on Wednesdays and I said done deal <laughs> He didn't want to see me on the golf course again. But he was a hell of a good MD of the company. His name was Wrighton, I think, from memory. And he was one of life's sort of seriously earnest managing directors. But he had a dry, droll sense of humour. And, uh, and and so it all passed off. And the manager of the carpet department got away dry. And and we kept on going, you know, having having a day off through the week in lieu of overtime, and it suited everybody. But then, then I left that, and I picked up this mate of mine called Bob Rolls as a 19-year-old, and we'd fished very seriously together all over Victoria and New South Wales, uh, and, uh, and we ended up in a partnership called Rolls & Allen, starting a tiny little fishing tackle shop in Spring Street at the top end of town. And, uh, and in, that's, the, in the CBD? In the CBD, and that started the Complete Angler. That was the, the beginnings of it all. Yeah, so that's my early life, yeah. And so what was that? Did you, were you guys just fishing one day and you are like, we should... No, no, I picked him up yeah. as a hitchhiker in my FJ hold outside the Maroonda Dam just out of Hillsville. And, of course, there they were with rods and reels, he and a mate. And because I had a mate in the car... And uh, he, he said, they've got fishing rods. So we pulled, we stopped the car, pulled them up, loaded them up and took them up to the Stevenson River. Now, Bob Rolls worked for a, a fishing tackle company called Turvels in North Melbourne at the time, James Turvels. And uh, he was 19. It was a new job to him, a new mag keen fisherman. And as we drove up through the Black Spur, he's extolling the virtues of fly fishing. I was just a mud-eye fisherman 
going up to the pondage to fish bubble floats and a mud eye and wasn't really interested in fly fishing, although my grandfather had a fly rod and had lent it to me, but I, you know, it wasn't it wasn't high on my agenda but catching bigger trout out of the pondage than little fish out of the Stevenson River at Buxton where Bob was going uh, was so I wasn't all that excited but that changed and Bob eventually sold me my first rod and reel and line um, which I've still got incidentally they're collector's items today and uh, in those days fishing tackle was very different you know fly rods were made out of split cane um, re- the lines were made out of silk, uh, very different from the carbon fibre. Or f- it started out as fibreglass and then developed into carbon fibre. And today's fly rods are all made out of carbon fibre, um, or, or, or a composite made out of graphite and carbon. Anyway, um, today I'm an avid collector of antique fishing tackle too, although in my retirement life I'm trying to sell down the collection because it's better to sell it with a warm hand and your knowledge than what it was having some poor unfortunate having to deal with my estate and all the mess it would entail but that's another story anyway um, and so that's how I started out in the fishing tackle trade well after that Bob and I didn't work very well as a partnership. We, but we were, he only died last year and we were lifelong friends. We never lost our friendship, but we certainly lost our partnership um, because he had a different ethos, I suppose, than I did. And he was the craftsman, fly fisherman, and he, he was without doubt the best fly fisherman I ever met or ever knew. And um, in fact, I only wrote an obituary about that just a few weeks ago, I I look back and I think we did the right thing, parting ways early. It wouldn't have worked even down, but fortunately it was a partnership that really only lasted a year. And then um, I had to change the name because you couldn't trade on as Rolls and Allen. So we, I had another mate of mine sitting in Hosey's Hotel who said, there's only two names for your shop, the Tackle Box or the Complete Angler. And I just went... It's going to be the complete angler, and it was, and uh, and that's how it developed. And uh, we um, were you tying your own flies and selling them at any point? Uh, or? No, but we got a whole lot of tires to tie flies and sold them. Uh, there was a famous old fly fisherman called Dick Wigram in Tasmania. We bought flies from him. Uh, there was a a very famous English nymph fisherman who died called Frank Sawyer, but his wife tied flies commercially and we bought them out from England. And so we were interested in being highly specialised in fishing tackle, not only fly fishing, game fishing as well. But, you know, I had a penchant for fly fishing more than I did for game fishing, although I did do a lot of game fishing. Um, you know, I went up to... And obviously there was a, like, so if you're going to buy flies from some specialist in Tasmania, the markup was there in the CBD, you know, to I make it I don't think the viable. markup was bigger in the CBD. Um, uh, I, I, I just think the CBD was the right place to be because there's so many fly fishermen who were doctors and lawyers and dentists and who all had practices in the CBD in those days. And so we started in the CBD because they come up at lunchtime and potter around our shop. And, and we very quickly moved from 
from um, Spring Street down into McKillop Street. And, um, and, and that's an interesting story because we bought the freehold property uh, in uh, McKillop Street and then later on in Flinders Lane. And uh, in fact, I was a proud owner of the 45th or the 47th most significant heritage building in Melbourne in McKillop Street because it was the first central bonded warehouse. It was an old bluestone building um, and and I bought it in a, a property collapse in 1968 um, in a Dutch auction with Joel's, the auctioneers, next door. And uh, I beat him, but only by luck, not by uh, any special intuition or or knowledge um but he came in and saw me and i was only 24 and he said who bought this building and i said i did he said oh your dad bought it did he i said no i did <laughs> and how did you buy it i said well i've had a lucky run on the stock market yeah that's another story and uh anyway he said well did you do some sort of Dutch auction? I said, yes, I did. And I told them not to ring back. He said, yeah, but I told them not to ring back one ahead of you. Anyway, I want to buy the building. Will you? I'd bought it for $43,000. He said, I'll give you $50,000 right here, right now. I said, no, it's going to be the best fishing tackle shop in Melbourne. And my passion's here. You're not moving me out, not even for double that, which was stupid of me, really. But anyway... So that's how we started, but um, it is true. I I I, I bought it. Uh, oh, there was an old stockbroker in Melbourne called Lindsay Mildred, and he'd suggested I buy these um, penny dreadful shares called Hampton Gold Mining Areas, and they were three shillings each. And I went off to a cousin's wedding in London, and of course in those days there was no internet or anything like that. I went into Qantas House. Um, uh, to read the newspaper to get some news about more of the Melbourne Football Club than my share broking, share trading right, activities. Good year for you then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. of course. And, and Melbourne was winning all the time. Anyway, uh, <laughs> well, actually, we weren't winning by then, but we'd won all through the 50s. But by 1964, we'd fallen apart. And we're now talking 1960. Oh, yeah, 1964. We're still there as a power, but anyway. Hampton Gold Mining Areas had gone from three shillings and uh, were sort of, you know, ten times that. And uh, so I sent a telegram home to sell. Mother went into the broker and by then they'd gone to $8. And, uh, and, uh, and of course, we're talking the, the changeover between decimal currency and, and, uh, and pound shillings and pence. I can't remember what, but I remember roughly the story and anyway they sold enough so mother sent me a telegram bank banked four thousand pounds or whatever it was in your bank account and i thought oh she sold all the shares when i got back to australia after the wedding in london i discovered i still had half the shares and they were worth 13 bucks so with that i had a twenty thousand dollar deposit to go on this building went down to the commercial bank of australia to ask them whether I could borrow another $20,000 to buy the building for $43,000. And, of course, the bank manager looked down his nose and said, we don't them boys of your age, that sort of money, young man. <laughs> I said, well, I'm going to take it further. He said, you take it where you like, sonny. And uh, at the time, the chairman of the bank 
uh, a mate of mine was marrying his daughter and I was best man. So I rang Mr Kimpton up, who ran feather mills and flour mills and was a, a big name. And uh, I, I said, Mr Kimpton, can I talk? to you about a, a commercial matter with the bank. Oh, of course you can, young Jim. And he, uh, he said, we'll have lunch at the club. And I said, well, I know you're not allowed to talk business in these clubs. And he said, well, I'm in office here. You needn't worry about that. We'll find a small corner. Anyway, I told him the story. And he said, of course, did you tell them your, you know, your family's been banging at the bank for a long time? And, uh, and my family had a a warehousing business in Flinders Lane selling Manchester and that sort of stuff and um, called Richard Allen's. And it was, in those days, it was import buddy restrictions and they made a lot of money and, of course, they banked with the bank. And, of course, no, I, I said, Mr Kimpton, no, I'm, I'm not going to big note, you know. Oh, he said, well, leave it to me, I'll sort it out. Well, the bank manager ran me the next morning and said... You didn't tell me you're a personal friend of the chairman of the bank. And I said, no, but I did tell you I'd take it, take it further. And I think your words was take it anywhere you like, Sonny. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the bottom line is that started me off because the, the bank lent me the dough. And, of course, it, and, and that's the kick. That's the kick ahead every young bloke needs. And I got that kick ahead. And, uh, and of course, from there it was like Topsy grew and the business grew and we opened a branch at Box Hill and then at Ringwood, then Sydney and Hobart. And in the end, I had nine fishing tackle shops and then d- divided one off to a fly fishing shop. And, and so life went from there. So I had a, a wonderful life in the fishing tackle trade. I love this. Yeah. So, yeah, so anyway, what, did you give a, that bloke a big hug who gave yeah. you the, the, <laughs> the tip? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah no, it was, you know, when I look back, I see kids leave school today and their parents pushing them into university degrees and I'm not sure everybody's suited to go to university whose family want to push them into it. I think sometimes you're better to go and live a life in a commercial life in a smaller business and get your grounding there. And I look at those kids that work at McDonald's or Kentucky Fried Chook or something and they're living a commercial life they're more likely to go and be successful than kids being taught by bureaucrats at university the theory of business rather than the practicalities of business. And I think I, I say to young blokes you know, when they're in their early 20s and they're worried about what they're doing, I say to them, find something ordinary and do it extraordinarily well. And it doesn't matter whether it's a coffee shop, a chemist shop or a, or a milk bar or whatever it is. I, I think the success in business is doing the job a lot better than the average businessman. And it's probably not all that hard to do to be better than the rest. And uh, so consequently... I'm not a great supporter of the formal education of a university unless you're going to be a dentist or a veterinary surgeon or a surgeon or a medico. I think there's reasons to go to university, but I think a lot of people go to university as a space filler. Rather than getting on with their lives, they, they put it as a delay. And, you know, I often say I don't think young blokes 
I should say young women, young people, um, get their brains until they're in their mid-twenties either. You know, too, too many times kids are too immature to make the decisions that are forced upon them by parents or advisors, um, even schools. I, I think, you know, sometimes a little reality check is to learning human skills, learning how to live in life with other people is more important than the formality of a university education. But I might be wrong, I don't know. I, I'm looking through 77-year-old glasses, aren't I? <laughs> no, 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 what you say resonates with me because that was my experience, but I'm sure if you went to, if I went to university, I'd be going, oh, I don't know, you know. Yeah, like, yeah, well, I, and I, I too, yeah. No, I, I'm sure that's right because, you know, I, I, a lot of my friends went through the formal education of university and they do look down at you as if you should have gone and you'd, you'd have done a lot better had you gone. I wonder. Well, of course, I'll never know. It doesn't matter anyway. I had a good life. And, in fact, no one. Like, when I look back, I dealt with other people's pleasures. And I remember a dentist saying to me one day out in the middle of Botsford, he said, unless I've got my hands in somebody's mouth, I'm not earning a bloody cent. And he said, I'm sitting here next to you and you've got 10 tills working for you. <laughs> he said, "He said, I know who did the right thing. Yeah, and he was, you know, he's a mad keen fly fisherman. And I laughed merrily, but I thought back later, you know, I've dealt with people's pleasure, you know, like people who fish come into your shop and they're, they're looking to be entertained. They're dealing with something that they're passionate about uh, because fishermen tend to be passionate about fishing. Uh, and so I was dealing in other people's pleasure where so many workplaces are dealing with other people's problems. You know, if you work for the tax department or you work for an insurance, like insurance must be the worst because you're having a bet that something won't happen. You've got to pay that bet out every year, hoping that you never have to get a dividend, you know, like because you know your insurance premiums are going to go up if you do. Mm. So I've dealt with other people's problems and more importantly than that you meet people from all walks of life you know there's not many Australians can say that they've had a 10 minute discussion on fishing with the president of the United States of America but Jim Allen has stop yeah, it yeah. which one <laughs> Jimmy Carter yeah no, yeah what? yeah yeah anyway how did and, that come about well we're a trade show in Atlanta and we had some very good friends in America you know and this woman who headed up the marketing department of the the fishing tackle branch of the 3M company, which is the biggest manufacturing company in the world, had a little hobby branch called Scientific Anglers. And they made SL fly lines, the best fly lines in the world still today, in my opinion. Anyway, this woman said, oh, we've got a VIP coming on in half an hour, Jim, hang around. And I thought, oh, God, I'm going to meet them, you know, the Lord Mayor of Atlanta, Georgia, or I'm going to meet. Anyway, that... 50 suits turn up and a little quick interview. Who are you? What are you doing? And you know, I'm Tasmanian, you know, Australian, and he got a fly fishing shop, and that's why I'm on Scientific Angler's stand. Anyway, blow me down. Suddenly, we're all lined up along. We put a little security badge on our chests, and we're lined up being introduced to the President of the USA. 
because 3M were the biggest company in the world and he was paying a quick visit. So I get introduced and he was well-versed. He said to me, do you ever fish in Tasmania? I said, it's my home. I've got a shack there. I fish there every year. He said, I've always wanted to fish the mayfly in Tasmania. And he was well-versed about it. So, of course, we start talking, and I talk about Little Pine Lagoon and Arthur's Lake and its mayfly hatches, and the security guard says, Sir, we're running one minute and 45 seconds behind schedule. And, and Jimmy Carter turns to him and says, I don't get many chances to talk about Tasmania's trout fishery. We'll just have to run a bit behind. Anyway, eventually he has to move on. He shakes everybody else's hands. I'm out of the will a bit there because he spent so much time with me talking trout fishing. And I look back now as a 70-year-old and think, how privileged was I? And suddenly the president of the USA is talking to me as if I'm a mate. We exchanged Christmas cards for a couple of years, then cards didn't come back. He didn't ever come to Australia. He would have loved to, he told me, on the day, but nothing ever happened, sadly. But, uh, yeah, that's a little anecdote. There was, you know, not many Aussies can say that. That is amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, over the years, of course, fly fishermen do come from all walks of life, and um, our Prime Minister of the day, Malcolm Fraser, was a mag keen fly fisherman, became quite a good mate of mine. And, uh, and he, of course, he has a shack about 200 yards away from me in Tasmania, and uh, which the family still have. And, uh, and I remember saying to Malcolm, I was fishing last week with your boss, and, of course, Malcolm Fraser was one of those stony-faced, tall... Um, some described him with an Easter Island statue face. And, right. uh, and he put his sternest look on. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, I, I was fishing with the guy for Marlin last week who um, is the CEO of one of the ratings companies that rates Australia's credit rating. And uh, he's the guy who decides Australia has an AAA plus or an AAA minus or an AAB or whatever it is. And, uh, <laughs> and Malcolm said, hmm, that's a door that I probably can't open. <laughs> anyway, we laughed it off. And, uh, but it illustrated to me how you do, through fishing, meet the most remarkable people and from all walks of life, both at the top of the tree and, and, of course, the guy just works at the Ford Motor Company putting bolts on vehicles, you know. But they all have the passion for fishing and it has no boundaries as to whether you're wealthy or whether you're poor or whether you're important or not important. The, the, the You know, I'm name-dropping as I... Yeah, yeah. Telling yeah. you this yeah. story. No, I know. However, it's just fun. you know, there is a humility about fishing. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, I... I uh, well, can I just say something? Because I... Yeah, go for your life. I just want to say, like, I, I, I understand what you're saying because it's fun. You know, we're, we're going highlights and it's fun. But there is something that I don't fly fish, but intellectually I understand that it's something to do with you and nature and the way that you play nature as a game to see if you can almost like full nature to then provide for yourself. It, I don't know. There seems to be more. It's a connection. It's much deeper than that. It's much think, deeper than that. Yeah, it's much deeper than that. It's not a game. It's 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 a passion. Um, and 
fly fishing definitely has um, in its adherence a special type of bloke and girl who fish today. There's a sort of one of the earliest fly fishermen in the world was a fellow called Charles Cotton and he wrote the second edition to the Complete Angler which was um, probably the most published work on angling and through the 1950s I think only the third most published work in the English language after the Bible and Pilgrim's Progress Um, and there's a church window in Winchester Cathedral where Isaac Walton lies buried and it's got Charles Cotton and the words study to be quiet and he wrote the first book really on recreational fishing rather than fishing for food and whilst we do fish for food it's significantly more important the philosophy about being out in the jizz so to speak you know I think um there's a natural there's an awareness of being outside in the most beautiful surroundings whilst fly fishing and whether that's the dappled creek or whether it's a full flowing river or whether it's the still waters of a big lake um there is something special about being out and seeing nature at work, whether it be a mayfly hatch or damselfly hatching from a nymph into the adult insect or whether it's a bird. or the, the, It's much more than just having a fly rod in your hand and catching fish. Um, and a lot of people think that it is all only just about a rod and reel and catching fish, but it's much, much more than that. And there's a a whole philosophy about fly fishing that I don't think I can even put in English. It's just, it's it's a passion. It's something that's... And I, and I, and I actually think it's a bit Neanderthal. I think it's sort of a throwback. I, I, I don't think you can make a fisherman. Um, I, I think fishermen are born as a sort of a throwback to a Neanderthal time. Um, you know, I've as I left school, I had a whole lot of mates of mine ring up and say, oh, I've got this eight-year-old and all he wants to go fishing, Jim, and I'm bored shitless about fishing. I don't want to go fishing and all he wants to do is fish. What do I do with him? And I'd say, you know, leave him on a pier, he'll be all right. Or the converse of that is a mad keen fisherman who's a mate of mine who's got an eight-year-old who's not interested. How do I make the eight-year-old interested in going fishing? Because I want to take him fishing. And he's not in. All he wants to do is play cricket or football or something. And I say, you can't do anything about it. It's either there or it's not there. Mm. And the International Game Fish Association did a study on this very subject in the 1970s or 80s. And um, they interviewed... I think three, four, five thousand people who fished more than five times a year who are over 60. What age did they start fishing? 96% of them started fishing before the age of eight. Now that's before you can make any decisions about going anywhere fishing. You have to be, you have to cajole an aunt, an uncle, dad, mum, somebody to take you fishing and yet they were fishing at the age of eight 96 percent of them so i think it's i think it's neanderthal i think it's a throwback to a hunter-gatherer past and uh and i i'm absolutely positive about that even having a lifetime of fishing at the i don't think you can make a fisherman they're born 
Man. Oh, I agree. And I'm like, isn't it weird the things that we're born with? Like me, I grew up on a farm, but I was obsessed with surfing. Yeah. You know? Like, and I did everything that I could to be around the ocean as much as I could. And yet I had no influences there. It was just, I had to do it. Yeah. And it's, be- it's still my life today and I'm 44. You know, it's like this was in And me. it doesn't ever leave you. No. No. And is it about the the biggest wave or is it, no, or is it just exactly, being out there? It's exactly what you just said about yeah. fly fishing. Yeah. It's been plugged in and connected to nature in an environment that you're not in control and you're coexisting with everything. You're hyper alert. You're reading the ocean. You, you just tell tale signs and, and you have really nice experiences and you have frightening experiences and, you know, it's a bit of survival in there and you, you get out and you get back to land and you feel exhilarated and uh, there's a connection with nature. And I think that's the thing that I was thinking about when you were talking then was that connection with nature, whether you're standing in a lake or you're going here in the ocean, when we're connected like that, yeah. it's this, we're alive. When you're out in an ocean, you are in big sky country, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like I remember John Denver singing a country and western song and it went along the lines of a sleepy blue ocean. And I thought, yes. It is a sleepy blue ocean, but sometimes it's not. And, uh, you know, I've been out of sea at Bermagui chasing elephant tuna or marlin off cans and seen some pretty horrendous winds uh, and, and southerly fronts coming up the coast where we've had to go for shelter very quickly uh, and being caught out in it. And, yeah, there is something about weather, and I yeah. think all surfers, fishermen have an eye to weather all of the time. In fact, they're weather experts because they see the the development of the wispy cirrus clouds heralding a new storm or a, or a, cha- a, a change of weather. And, uh, and, and we know that uh, you become actually better at it. I remember I was fishing with a mate of mine called Julian Brown and we're... Uh, out in the western lakes and a thunderstorm rolls in. It's one of those rolling thunderstorms where the first set of clouds is like a a sort of a blanket rolling towards you with lightning pouring down. Anyway, it was dead calm as this front's coming. I said to Julian, we're going to cop a 40-knot wind here, you know, but we were... We were land fly fishing. We were out in the Western Lakes. You know, we could walk back to a car. We didn't have to worry about boats or anything. Anyway... Huey sent down the best lightning storm you've ever seen. (laughs) And, of course, graphite rods were brand new at the time, and my fly rod started buzzing, which was the building up of static electricity in it. And you know what? Next tap, so I threw the rod in the water, went back and got under the the biggest tussock I could, said to Julian, I'm shit scared. Like, Huey wants us. All he's got to do is send a lightning boat and it's all over Red Rover. And I said, I'm not too excited about pearly gates. I'm not sure they're real. (laughs) And (laughs) anyway, we both hit under as the storm went through. Then it went dead calm and every trout in this lagoon tailed, which means they were feeding on isopods, which is a sort of prehistoric shrimp in Tasmania. and uh, Prehistoric? Yeah. In Tasmania, they have an insect, well, not an insect, a a shrimp-like 
prehistoric shrimp, and they belong to a family called Fritosoids, and I'm not sure I've said that correctly, and there's isopods and amphipods, and the isopods are bigger than the amphipods, but the tail and the shallows feeding on them, and in this particular case, I don't know what it was about, whether it was the nitrogen in the air or the lightning or... But after this thunderstorm went through, was all dark and grey and dead still, and every fish in the lake showed its tails as they, as they were feeding. We didn't actually catch all that many. I think we caught one or two each, but, but it was a very exciting fishing period that I've indelibly printed in my memory because of being shit-scared in the electrical storm because the lightning was crashing into the ground all around us. It was very violent, only for 10 minutes, but, you know, but that's nature at its best, and, uh, you know, I'll never forget it. Oh, I love that feeling yeah. of an electrical storm coming and you feel the energy in the air. Yeah, you do. just get yeah, excited. Well, and, well and, it, and it's real. Yeah. Yeah, my fly rod started buzzing, and, and I knew instantly because we've read stories about fishermen being hit by lightning so I threw the rod in the water and thought I'll go back and get it later <laughs> it was only in shallow water you know like it, but uh, yeah I'll never forget that but but getting back whether it be calm weather or whether it be rough weather I think all fishermen like weather I think they they're in, entranced by it you know I think uh, uh, you see so many changes in weather and, and, and of course with the weather changes come the arrival of insects for fly mm. fishermen because insects get onto the water um, whether it be a beetle hatch or whether it be a mayfly hatch or even a hot northerly and grasshoppers being pushed into a river uh, in a hot northerly uh, fly fishing's all around what trout eat and uh, in many cases it's insects and so consequently, um, our fishing revolves around weather and, and, and being in the right spot at the right time. But we talk as I Huey. said before, it's yeah. not about catching trout and how many trout you catch. I, I was a guest speaker recently at a, a club in Melbourne and somebody said, what's the best fishing you've ever had? And I said, well, I can only use an analogy and uh, it goes along the lines of, I like the girls that say they do, and I like the girls that say they don't, but the girls to whom I'm most attracted are the girls that say they don't, but look as if they might. And I think trout fishing revolves around the might factor more than it does the actual catch factor. Um, it's, it's the fish that you saw and didn't catch. It's the might factor that's so much more important uh, when it comes to of fishing than what you caught or or what you didn't catch and so uh i i think um uh, i think fishermen have all always learned to be good losers because they have so many bad days they have many 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 more bad days than they have good days fishing but it's the good days fishing and a good day's fishing doesn't necessarily mean catching that six pound trout or eight pound trout it's about the day in its entirety and whether it's sitting on a tussock quietly contemplating what's going to happen or what might happen uh, is just as important as the actual excitement. And, and transferring that over into game fishing for marlin and tuna, it's even more pronounced because, you, you know, being out on a sleepy blue ocean towing baits for marlin is hours and hours of 
solitude and, and, and although it's not solitude by the fact you're in a boat with a crew, um, you're out at sea with nothing happening and then suddenly all hell breaks loose as a, a marlin uh, strikes a bait and, and, and you, then you, you know, with a big marlin, like a thousand pound marlin, uh, every every sinew and muscle in your body aches after an hour and uh, and you might not catch the fish anyway. And even then... If you do catch a fish, you put a plastic tag in it and let it go anyway. In this day and age, um, big game fishing of stringing up a 1,000-pound marlin on a hoist is all gone. People don't do that today. They tag and release them. And whilst there is an element of cruelty in game fishing, there's also the acid of tagging that fish and perhaps it gets caught somewhere else in the planet and you get to learn... A, the difference in the size of the fish from when it was first caught to when it was caught later, so you know their growth statistics, or its migration, where it was caught. There's been fish that have been caught off the west coast of America, caught off the east coast of Australia, and they've travelled right across the Pacific Ocean, and so so much is learnt by tagging and releasing fish. But in the 1950s, of course... The earlier fishermen um, strung their fish up and there's a photo of George with his 1,000-pound marlin and that was thought to be pretty impressive at that time. But today, you don't do that. And it's a bit like big game hunting in Africa. I did a trip to Kenya, which I've shown you a few photos, um, you know, back in the 1920s, there was George with his rifle uh, with his foot on the top of a, some kudu antelope lion head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but today it's now a ph- photographic exercise and it's even thought to be ghoulish to watch the the wildly beasts crossing the rivers being eaten by the crocodiles, which is a natural event that happens in the migration every year. But those that live in Africa see those that want to go and watch that ghoulish um, sight uh, look down their noses at it. And I have to say, I, I was guilty. I went to Africa uh, in 2018 for the first time in my life to see to see the wild animals of Africa, and it had been one of those sort of bucket list trips that I wanted to do. And uh, I, I, I spent a week with a very old African Bushman, Englishman, but a, an African Bushman who'd lost a son, teenage son, to a hippopotamus accident, and he'd lived in Africa all his life. And I said to him, oh, you know, I'd love to see the crocs eating the gnus or the wildebeest. He said, no, you wouldn't. He said, you sit alongside 100 four-wheel drive vehicles all watching it. It's the most disgusting sight. It's not what you want to see. Africa's so much more about the, the wild animals than seeing that. And I remember lying in bed in, in the camp that we're in thinking, this bloke's right on the money. He, it isn't what I wanted to see. I thought I wanted to see it, but it wasn't what, what I wanted to see 
to see the animals in their natural habitat and 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 to be with this guy for a, for a week who knew so much about the plant life the insect life the animal life he just knew he had an, an amazing amount of knowledge and i felt very privileged to be with him for a week and i was lucky enough to take a thousand photographs so i've got a treasured memory yeah did you yeah. go alone on that trip yes i did um so I, didn't you think when you're alone you the connections that you can form with people along the way are much deeper correct i I, I thought that through. I didn't want to be in one of those mini buses with a whole lot of tourists um, leaning over their shoulders taking photographs of a, a leopard or something. Uh, so consequently, I did decide to do a one-on-one safari. I'll own up and say it cost a fortune. On the other hand, it was a privilege to be with one bloke who knew so much and his Maasai driver. He had a wonderful... Uh, African, native African driver who was a charming man and uh, I just had the best week you could ever expect and uh, and uh, you know I'd, I'd never done it and I thought well, I'm only ever going to do it once so I, I spent the dough and did it on a one-on-one which was outrageous from a monetary point of view but it was the best thing I did because I learned so much more and I laughingly wrote an article for a fishing magazine saying the Yanks who live in Montana, who fish there, call Montana Big Sky Country. They have no idea what Big Sky Country is when you get onto the Maasai Mara of, of Kenya and leading down into Tanzania and seeing those grasslands there with the, the, with the wildebeest and the, and the kopi and the antelopes that live on those plains that's big sky country and those american friends of ours have no idea what big sky country is until you get to africa but i spent half my time on the plains of africa and then in the savannah down in the volcanic country near um kilimanjaro um but on the kenyan side uh and uh, i spent a lot of time in a volcanic national park there which was fascinating and saw some wonderful animals there as well so i i, I think i saw africa at its best something that i think is a worry is the chinese have a built and road program there and they're building a railway line right through the national park right near Nairobi. Um, and I thought that was a tragedy, you know. Like, and as I said earlier in this interview with you, I think mankind is a plague on the planet and the future of Africa's wildlife uh, will depend on whether they can have some population controls because it's ever increasingly being encroached onto the wildlands or the, the, the country that those animals need to live in. And uh, so I fear for the future. As I said before, we're a plague. Well, uh, in the same vein, I read the other day that, you know, the Gun Barrel Highway that goes through the middle of Australia, it's a yeah. dirt track, that they're working on sealing that road. Yeah. And I just think, you know, that's just... There'll be McDonald's wrappers out there. And yeah, like, yeah, The yeah, heart yeah, of Australia yeah, yeah, yeah. should be hard to get to. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree with you more. And uh, and with sealed roads come all the other vehicles where, you know, those those old dusty trucks and tracks. Yeah. Um, that, yeah, no idea. I, I wonder whether we as human beings can learn to live sustainably managing our population you know our all our economies survive on growth and progress and 
there has to be a reckoning. Now, Jim Allen would like... I feel comfortable in dying, but I, I don't feel comfortable by the fact that I can't come back and look at just a glimpse of what happens every hundred years from now on, because eventually mankind won't survive on the planet. Something will knock us off, whether it be an asteroid or whether it be a disease or, or whether it be the sun running out of energy. Who knows what will happen in a thousand, a hundred thousand, a million years from now. But I, I don't believe... You know, mankind's time of life on this planet has a recorded history of 10, 20,000 years at best. The dinosaurs lived here 40 to 60 million years ago. Um, I don't think we'll survive 40 to 60 million years as human beings, the way, we, the way we're destroying our environment and living with progress. Uh, and, uh, you know, everything's about infrastructure and about building more roads, building more properties. Uh, and, 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 you know, even in Australia, you know, we have to have a migration program to keep the thing going. And eventually, at some stage, we have to learn to live within our limits and to, I don't know whether you have population control, I wouldn't dare to even go into the subject. But when I see families in the not so wealthy parts of Melbourne, having families of six, eight, 10, 12, there should be some limitations as to how many children you, you have and, and we should learn to live within our limits and it's not happening yet. And yet the wild trout fishery that I remember as a kid is not the same as the wild trout fishery that exists today and will change dramatically further. When I first went to Tasmania, it was rare to see another angler on one of the remote lakes in Tasmania. Today, it's unusual to get a lake to fish on your own. And uh, the times have changed dramatically, partly because recreation is so much more important today uh, than what it was then. And, and secondly, um, the population is so much greater. There's more fishermen uh, fishing with a fly rod than ever before. And um, whilst that's been good for my business, in my business life, uh, I'm not sh so sure it's the best thing for the planet. You know, I I'm sure that, you know, will we... Um, we're already turning, um, or, you know, parts of Tasmania into World Heritage Area or, or reserves. Um, but... There is a difference in in having a wild trout being caught six or eight, ten times and a wild trout being caught once in its life only. And um, I went to Alaska years ago and uh, we were going to fish for the coho salmon on the west coast of, of um, America and <clears throat> we flew into Alaska and we'd been promised the best coho salmon fishing in the world it was you know we were there for the right time we'd been sold it when we got there the run hadn't started and we were pretty disappointed we'd flown from australia we'd been made the promise that we we're going at the right time of the year and anyway the owner of the lodge said look i'll send you to a very privileged very rarely fished rainbow trout fishing where there's wild rainbow trout 
Anyway, we were quite excited about that, so we took off in seaplanes the next morning, landed on a lake just where this river ran in. They had some jet boats there, so we went up on the jet boats and anyway, got six or four or six miles upstream and we were put out to fish. And Yeah, we caught plenty of rainbows, but I looked at the rainbows' mouths and they'd had trout hooks in them many times before. Um, I could hear another jet boat further up the stream, so the guides had divided the river up to that lodge having these pools and our lodge having these pools. This remote wild trout river... Well, the trout were wild, but they'd all been caught 15 times. They didn't fight very hard. You know, you'd just strike on one. And you, you got the feeling the trout had said, oh, jeepers, another cock up. So, you know, they just came in and <laughs> let them go again. And, and uh, I came back to the lodge thinking, nah, it's not what my trout fishing was all about. And I went back to Alaska three times and I'd never go back again. The Americans' idea of wild trout fishing and remote fishing is not the same as mine, and um, my remote fishing in the highlands of Tasmania is still better than what's available to the few hundred thousand visiting anglers to Alaska every year, and the lodges promote their wild salmon and wild trout fishing very differently. But I guess we're going down the same path, which distresses me somewhat, but that's life. Yeah. Alaska, though, well, I've been to Alaska and I surfed in at a glacier out of Seward called oh, Bear yeah. Glacier. And just that experience, it just is so imprinted. And when you were talking then, I was getting the visuals of those mountains where they meet the rivers. It's, it's, oh, it's a beautiful country. Unbelievable. Absolutely. And America is blessed with beautiful countries. Uh, a beautiful scenery and beautiful country, you know. Uh, I've travelled through the Yellowstone Park. Yeah. I would have loved to have looked at it in 1910 rather than 2010. Uh, but nevertheless, it's still naturally a beautiful country, you know. It, it, okay, it's got freeways and tourist roads all through it, and it's different to what it was, but... Naturally, America was blessed with some of the yeah. the best country in the world. But it, again, it's it's over it's overpopulated. It's not what it once was, and probably never can be again. Well, I worry after coming back, spending some time in the states myself, and I had that. I was away during that big jump of population growth down here. So when I left, it was things were sort of still quiet. When I came back, it was chaos, and. Oh, it's hard to explain. It's not Orange County yet, but if we keep going the way we are, we will be just like south of Los Angeles. Just Exactly. Yeah. And what we had was beautiful was gone. And I just... Well, just where we live now on the Bellarine Peninsula, when you see the new development of Kingston out of Ocean Grove, you know, it's not going to be long before Ocean Grove is a suburb of Geelong. Mm. And, um, you know, we live at Queenscliff and still have a wonderful whiting fishery and still catch flathead and still... But, you know, the, the, today sometimes you're fishing with 50 and 60 boats within a mile or two of you, you know, like it's sort of... You do worry about how long's it going to last. And uh, I, I think there's no doubt we've lived in the best time, but I, I suspect every generation says that. But when you think that we... 
were born as war babies and saw the advent of the motor car in young boys' hands. You know, when, when, I, was, when I was 21, 22, most of my generation had a motor car. Well, my parents' generation never had a motor car like that. You know, the old fishing trips were done in a furniture van as a member of the Paran Fishing Club or Turak Angling Club or Richmond Angling Club, and every suburb had an angling club, and they went away up to the Goulburn River in a furniture van for the weekend. Um, where we went in our FJ Holdens, we were the first generation to really explore northeastern Victoria and its trout waters with the accessibility um, and I, I look back and think, you know, we were the first generation to really have good fishing in the rivers of Victoria that's not as good today um, because of the fishing pressure. Most of the rivers now have anglers on them every day. Um, and so consequently, the times have changed. And will we be the last generation to see truly wild trout fishing where a trout's only ever been caught once in its life, not caught 14 times uh, like in Alaska? And, and increasingly I see the fishing pressure in Tasmania where the western lakes have the lagoons there that once had a, a fisherman once a month, once, once perhaps once a season, now has probably an angler on it once a week or even once a day. And sometimes, like Lake Botsford, it's not unusual to see six or eight anglers walking through and polaroiding the trout in Botsford. And today the fisheries put fish into the western lakes for fishermen to catch. And fortunately, with more intelligent bag limits, when I first fished Lake Botsford, it had a bag limit of 12 trout. And I've been guilty of catching 12 trout and killing them back in those days. Now the bag limit's two, and which is the correct bag limit, uh, in my view. But it's now got eight or 10 anglers on it on a Saturday or Sunday. In the early days when I first Polaroid, it was unusual to see an angler on it more than once a week, mm. which was probably me, you know, like, because... So the times of fishing has changed and the management of our trout fishery has had to change. And, uh, and, 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 and we've lost a lot of waters too, um, to um, forestry in my view. Uh, waters like Arthur's Lake... Um, the Lagoon of Islands in Tasmania and Lake Sorrel in Tasmania are only remnants of their former fisheries. You know, once upon a time, they were outstandingly good trout fisheries with, with wonderful mayfly hatches. Well, you know, Lake Sorrel today is a mud hole. It's the, the modern-day circular irrigation programs where farmers have to irrigate... Uh, and use so much water um, has caused management programs for water management and with that I think some of our trout fishing is degraded um, also forestry operations coming down to the edge of lakes disturbing the soil have, have caused algal blooms um, the lagoon of islands which has now been drained. Once upon a time, my diary records six and seven and eight pound trout being caught at dawn there in the most magnificent water snail muddy movements. 
Um, that fishing doesn't exist. The, wa- the water's been drained out of it. Um, and uh, Arthur's Lake's the same. The forestry operations and a bushfire has decimated the, all the wonderful fishing that it once was. So, so yeah, just to... I'm a gloom and doom merchant, aren't I? When I talk about this, no, well, you, it, re- but... it resonates with me yeah. because I, I like honestly, I, th- I feel the same way about the we- direction we're moving in hu- as humanity, as humans and humanity. But like, in, was the Murray and like the Edward River once clear? This is what I hear. Um, not a Murray River fisherman, uh, but I can talk about the Goulburn River. When I was a boy, the Goulburn River was gin clear, uh, but with the advent of the farms around Lake Eildon turning into five and ten acre plots for people to have holiday houses on them, the nutrients of the superphosphate that has been quadrupled, quintrupled, don't ask me the percentages, has caused algal blooms on Eildon. Um, the usage of the water is so much greater to go down into the Murray because of the needs of, of, of water down further for both farming and domestic use in South Australia um, has, has meant the gin-clear waters of the Goulburn River coming out of Eildon Weir um, are no longer gin. It's got a, an olivey green colour. It's still clear water and you probably still drink it but I wouldn't drink it today where once upon a time you wouldn't have even thought about it. So the waters are changing because of development. You know, the the, the Eildon that I once knew didn't have the boat harbours, the... the um, uh, the boating, the the 10-acre the property developments, the uh, all around the, the shoreline is so treasured today by holiday makers, stroke, you know, people that want to have a small farm on Eildon. The the subdivisions have occurred where the 1,000-acre properties are now into the 110-acre properties, you know, and so consequently the water's changed because so much more is going in in nutrient. Um, and that's my guess at the situation, but the water is dramatically different to what it once was. And, of course, on the Goulburn River, you've got a whole heap of trout hatcheries now, and their effluent goes into the river. They'll tell you that it's beautiful water going back into the river. It's treated, but I don't think it is. But then again, I'm a cynical old bastard. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm a cynical young bastard. Um, So, look, tell me... You've got an Order of Australia medal. Ah, oh, yeah. Look, look I, I, I know, I know. Talk it down. No. But they don't give them out on the back of, you know, cereal boxes. No, I, I, I've been... Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've been involved in fishery, recreational fisheries management. You know, I've been on ministerial advisory boards and now, now I'm big noting I'm president of the Game Fishing Association of Victoria, president of the Victorian Fly Fishers. I've got myself involved in, in a whole lot of committees and councils and things over the years and um, I don't know how these honours work but I had no idea it was coming. It came out of left field for me but... <laughs> What happens is I think a few of your mates say, oh, Jim's made a contribution, we ought to get it recognised. And so they put it up and then, you know... Now, I'm being suspicious here, but I suspect because of some of the people that I knew, like Malcolm Fraser and 
Michael Jeffrey, who became Governor-General. These guys got approached. And, of course, then they put in, oh, we love Jim Allen, and, and yes, he's done a lot, so, so I got an award. Now, my award is the lowest of the the general awards. It's a medal to the Order of Australia. And, and uh, I remember saying to a... Uh, I won't mention his name, a governor of Victoria. And he said, Jim, he said, don't think lowly of your award. He said, because all those that get the AMs and ACs often get them because they're the chairman of a hospital or they're the chairman of a bank or they're the chairman of a BHP and they get them by tradition not what they've done. They've been paid well for what they've done, but they get it because of the title that they held. But to me, as Governor of Victoria, I always recognise the little old lady from Gippsland who worked tirelessly for the poor or for a charity in Orbost or Eden or wherever. They're the ones that were the real contributors to life in Australia. So nowadays I'm more proud of my award than what I was when I first got it because he gave me a reality check. And when I think of the thousands of hours that I did put in in fighting for recreational fishing, fighting for wild trout, game fishing rules, tag and release, all these sort of things that were good at the time, I'm quite proud of it now where when it was first awarded I... I wouldn't say I pooed it, I was never that bad, but <clears throat> it did take a reality check by a Governor of Victoria to make me aware that the OAMs of Australia are probably more significant uh, than the ACs and AMs that are given to people by an entitlement of being Prime Minister of Australia. You're automatically going to get the equivalent of a knighthood uh, because of the position that you have. Um, and, and, of course, when it comes to the, the heads of banks who get them, you know, they paid six or eight million bucks to be the MD of a bank and then they get an AM because I'm head of that bank. And, and this is how it was illustrated to me. And I thought later, I thought... You miserable shit, Jim. You, you should think a bit more about how this picture worked rather than sort of... I, I, that's never poo-hooted, but I thought, you know, like, it wasn't as significant as I think it is now, so I'm quite proud of it now, so... Yeah, that's yeah, great. Yeah, so, yeah, I have a different view than what I originally had when it was presented to me. Um, and uh, and I, I, I think... In many cases, there are people who work for the community for nothing tirelessly, whether it be for a local volunteer fire brigade, whether it be for a charity or a country woman's association lifetime. There are people that do really seriously do a lot of good work for the Australian community, and they deserve to be recognised with their honours. And... Uh, I don't know whether I deserve mine as well as some of the others because there are people that really do deserve their awards. And then there's those who get them by the position they hold. And, and I, I thought the Governor of Victoria who told me that, I think is one of our best governors too. I, you know, I really thought that he, 
he, he was on, well, he, well, he's one of the most intelligent men I've ever met, so that's another story anyway. Yeah. Okay, one more question, and then I'll let you get on with your day. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I loved watching the doco, uh, no, the doco, the series that you and the, the Great White Shark did. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. How did, you, how did that um, come about? How did you meet him? How did <laughs> A fellow that... called Rodney Clark wanted to do it, yep. and uh, Rodney Clark was passionate about putting fishing and golf together with Greg Norman and I think he described it originally as the white shark goes fishing or something. Um, Greg Norman uh, is a seriously passionate fisherman and uh, and so they did this. It was originally to be a 10-part television show, um, 10 and a half hours, and, uh, and then it was put into, eventually sold us two DVDs, a freshwater and a saltwater, but it took us all around the Pacific, New Zealand, New Guinea, Tasmania and parts of Australia and Greg came to some of them and, and, uh, and it was a, a great privilege for me to see the insides and outs of what I unkindly put as a type one personality but he is a totally focused guy. I got on very, very well with him and his wife, Laura, at the time. Was that the and first time you'd met him? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. In fact, he paid me a great compliment. I did an interview with him on a mothership up at Cairns after marlin fishing, and he caught an 800-pound marlin. I think they described it as bigger than that, but, yeah, anyway... And uh, he said to me at the end of the interview, how long have you been interviewing people? I said, I've never interviewed anyone in my life. He said, well, I've been interviewed by hundreds. And he said, you're as good as it gets, so don't give up on it. I said, no, no. I said, I can talk to you about fishing because it's what I know about. Oh, he, and he did say to me, he never mentioned golf. I said, no, Greg. You know, he said, do you play? I said, yeah, yeah. I said, I'm a member of all the good clubs, you know. Like, uh, I, I said, but I'm, I'm not in the sort of same class by a country mile than Greg Norman. I said, I play off 24 uh, down in Victoria and I'm a member of Barwon Heads and I'm a member of Metropolitan Royal Melbourne. I'm big in, a bit long in golf courses, but you are talking to Australia's greatest hacker. <laughs> and and uh, anyway, uh, he laughed that off and, he, and, and he, he was quite impressed with my golf clubs. You know, he said, oh, he said he belonged to the best golf clubs in, in Australia. But um, but he he, I think looking back, Greg tried to emulate um, the career of um, gosh, I've lost his name. Um, I mentioned it to you before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Jack Nicholas. Yep. Yeah, sorry, it was out of the brain for a second. And Jack Nicholas, of course, came to Australia and caught a very very large marlin. I think it was twelve hundred pounds. And uh, and I think Greg, I'm reading between the lines because Greg never ever talked to me about it, but I suspect he tried to emulate his golfing career and fishing career on Jack Nicholas. But to be fair to Greg, he was very heavily involved with the Billfish Foundation, the conservation of billfish in um, in the, in Florida where he lives, and uh, he was as passionate as I am about the conservation of our fisheries, and I think he probably still is. Um, but I've lost touch with him. We don't keep in regular contact. But at the time when we did that filming, it was pretty special, and we yeah. 
well, you know, for me it was easy. That, you know, normally I paid a lot of money to go on safaris to New Zealand and Cairns and New Guinea, and, and we went up the Kokori River and caught those Papuan black bass. And uh, they're a remarkable fish. And I, and I fished with some interesting Americans and Poms who, <laughs> who came out. And if you watch that DVDs of them, you, you can you can see um, a lot of fishing characters yeah. and uh, people that are passionate about fishing. And uh, I thought it was good, but it never made any money. It was it was a good ego trip for Jim Allen, but <laughs> but um, and it was fascinating to do. We did fish some of the most remarkable waters in the world. Uh, we're in New Zealand. We helicoptered into a. Um, uh, a river Y, and every river in New Zealand starts with Y, because that's Y is Maori for water, I think. And you know, the 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 average Australian will say, "Oh yeah, well I fish the Y Kickamoo cow," <laughs> <laughs> but but in actual fact, we fished it, an unnamed river. And we went in by helicopter, and they knew a pad where we could land. And uh, I fished and had a day catching. With a film crew, well, we caught, I think we caught 14 rainbows in the first hour and then the film crew packed up and I said, well, we're not leaving. Oh, no, the helicopter's waiting. I said, well, the bloody helicopter can wait. We're not going to... And we fished on and caught another 20 or 30 trout, which was fantastic. And they're all two-pound rainbows, and some of them were three, and it was pretty special. And a bit of it's on the footage there, you can see it, but it was, it was a special little fishing trip. And then I caught a a very large brown trout. In fact, on a fly rod in a river, it's still the biggest brown trout I've ever caught and weighed over 10 pounds. And it's a wonderful bit of footage, if you see the footage of this trout rising to an Adam's fly and uh, and then me catching it. And then I remember uh, there was one we, you were very happy about yeah, more yeah, than well, the others. we've all got an ego. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I've certainly got one. <laughs> uh, Jim, so, look, I won't keep you anymore. I yeah. want to just say thank you so much for having a chat. Have you got me. enough? I reckon, we've got, <laughs> I reckon we've got enough. Yeah, right. Or we could do a part two, I reckon. I, there was a million questions in there that I just bit my lip right, on. Right, oh, well, if you want to come back and do volume two. <laughs> oh, fantastic. <laughs> I okay, no worries, John. Thanks, yeah. Jim. No worries. Yeah. All right, there you have it. There was my chat with none other than Jim Allen. Jim, if you're out there, thank you so much for um, letting me come over and have a coffee and, and, and telling me those stories and, and the yarn that we had afterwards. Super appreciate it. Um, uh, whoever else you are out there in the wide world, I hope you enjoyed my chat with Jim. Uh, I hope you are faring well and your attention isn't too zeroed in on the negative. Um, right now, the sun is shining. It's winter and uh, it's a beautiful morning. The last two days have been just great here. Just cold though, you know, a little cold. Um, but anyway, I won't keep you any longer thank you so much for tuning in as always and until next time adios